Hello friends, Jose Zayas here again. This week we're continuing in our series, The Way of Jesus. We're looking at Matthews 5, 6, and 7, which are the central teaching. How do we live in, un, in and under God's rule? Remember Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven, God's rule, God's space has come near now in Jesus. And in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, we see how to live it out. And remember last week, we looked at the importance of the Bible. Let's just read it again. Matthew 5 verses 17 through 19. It says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then he gives the, the rationale here, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of the commands and even teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Last week we saw uh, what Jesus came to do concerning the Bible. Well, let's just, we're going to look at these verses again because there's so much here and it's actually going to set the tone. What we see after this is Jesus is going to take six examples in the law, in the Bible, six commands that they knew about, that the rabbis talked about, that were seemingly clear. Everyone should know these, but Jesus says, you don't even fully understand what they're about. And Jesus gives the right interpretation of them. But before we look at these six, and that's going to take us the next six weeks, I want us to stop for a second and think about what we view as the importance of the Bible. Let me just ask you, is the Bible really important to you? Now, I don't know where you are in following Jesus. I'm going to assume you are for a second. You're a Jesus follower. Great. Where does the Bible sit amongst all the things that you think about? When you think of all the input you have every week, the things that you read, the things you focus on, the things you choose to watch again and again and again, the things you choose to even memorize or put into practice, where does the Bible sit in relation to where you spend your time? Now, please do not give me the Jesus church answer. I think if you're a Jesus follower, what you're going to default say is, oh man, the Bible is really important to me. Is it really? Is the Bible actually important to you? Before we look at these commands that Jesus is going to bring to the completion, give the right interpretation to, I think it's important that we stop and evaluate where our lives fit in relationship to the Bible. Let me tell you, we're living in a, in a time of contradiction, especially in our culture and definitely in the church. What do I mean by that? I mean, two things are happening at the same time that are a seeming contradiction. Number one, we have more access to the Bible than ever before in the entire history of the church. We're almost inundated with the Bible in America, according to the American Bible Society. In America, uh, the average family has three copies of the Bible in their house. 87% of Americans have a copy of the Bible, which is like huge in all of human history. There's never been a time where so many people have had a copy or multiple copies of the Bible. At the same exact time, according to American Bible Society, in a survey taken just last year, only 11% of Americans have actually read the whole Bible. Now, in that survey, they were asking anyone, just like Americans, not just Christians. Okay, so the average home has three Bibles. Only 11% of Americans have actually read the whole thing. 
And then what's really scary is another 30% on top of that have only read a couple of stories in the Bible. So that means like a majority have never read the entire thing and a huge portion of that have only read a few things. Only 36% of Americans right now believe that the Bible is actually true. Only 36% think it's true. That means the majority is not so sure. And only about 50% think that the Bible is a good source for like moral teaching. So in our culture, in our world, we have a glut of Bibles, but many, I would dare say most, don't take the Bible seriously. I'm just talking huge swath in culture. I'm not even talking about particularly in the church, but what we believe about the Bible is right now out of sync. 87% of Americans have it, but a good chunk don't believe it's actually true and the majority don't even read it. So we're at this contradiction. Now, where do we sit? Where do we fit as Jesus's followers? Well, what we saw from last week is that Jesus has a really high view of the scriptures and he's very clear early on in this message. I have not come to throw this thing out. The Bible is the word or has the words of God. This is God's revelation to us and Jesus affirms it. Remember three things that we saw from last week that are the foundation that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do the things that were written about him. That's part of why we read the early part of the Bible is we see what Jesus came to do. How do we know that Jesus is God's messenger, God's Messiah? It is the early part of the Bible that shows us what Jesus is going to do. More than that, Jesus came to teach with authority what the Bible fully means. Remember, all the rabbis and teachers, they had their opinion about the Bible and the Pharisees said one thing and the Sadducees said another and they didn't agree, but Jesus uniquely gives us the right interpretation. Now, the right interpretation of what? Of the Bible. The first two thirds, what we call the Old Testament, is what Jesus came to elaborate. And then remember, Jesus came to bring it to its completion. The storyline, the trajectory of the Bible from Genesis on is about God's rescue of his people who've fallen into sin again and again. And Jesus is going to come and make things right. And Jesus is going to come and bring things back. And this is the story of the Bible that Jesus completes. Coming full circle, though, how do we live in light of that? I want us to focus today on verse 20, which we read last week, but we really didn't think about. Verse 20 of Matthew 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. For us, we looked at like, okay, whatever. This would have been a shocker to everyone watching Jesus. They would have been like, great, we love you, blessed, 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 salt, light, this is all good news. And then they hear this and like, oh, forget it. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you, you're not even gonna enter in to this new life with God where you're drawn close unless your rightness exceeds the Bible scholars of their day. Who are the Pharisees? Well, the name Pharisee comes from this word separate or divide. The Pharisees were the group of people who took the Bible so seriously that they wanted to set themselves apart as a community who actually tried to practice what God said. So they took the 613, remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books have 613 
commands, teachings. These are the things that God wants us to do and avoid. Uh, and, and they took them so seriously that they thought about what does it mean? What does this command mean? And in our day, thousands of years later, how do we live this out? And they started a tradition of what's now called the oral commands. You had the written commands that you could see on the scrolls, but then they had these ways of living it out. So if God says this, all right, in today's culture, these are the three things that we're going to have to do to live out that command. Now, in, in their community, they were highly respected. These are not like the bad guys. They're like the ultra, ultra, ultra serious. Do you know someone who's like super serious about following the rules? Well, there's, there's something to admire about that, where they take God's word seriously, yet at the same to token, they were hyper strict. And so it wasn't about just them living out, you know, in their relationship with God. Their goal was to get the entire community to actually practice the Bible, which, by the way, is ridiculously awesome. That is not a bad thing at all. So sometimes the Pharisees get a slam, but their goal is beautiful. What if God's people actually lived out the Bible? I mean, think of our church. Think of your family. Think of your life. Wouldn't it be amazing if you learned to know the Bible and as you see the progress of your life, you begin living out the Bible. And what would, what would Hillsboro, Beaverton, Portland, what would this metro area, what would our state look like if hundreds of thousands, if not more, began to know God, know his word, and live it out? That would be amazing. Yet Jesus says the righteousness that they're going for of living, knowing God's word, and living it out to the, this group of ragtag people who are following him, mostly poor, mostly from the lower classes, broken. He says, unless your rightness is greater than them, you're not gonna enter in, which on one level sounds impossible, except if you missed last week, think back, watch it. But for those of you who did watch last week, what is Jesus alluding to? This new righteousness is not gonna be based on the old covenant, Jesus came to complete and bring us into a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And the time's gonna come where I am, I'm gonna do a work in your heart. I'm gonna write God's words on your heart and I'm gonna forgive your sins and I'm gonna remember your sins no more. What Jesus is, is not saying, unless you follow the rules better than the Pharisees, you're never gonna enter into this close relationship with God. He's actually saying, because he has come, right? Jesus has come. Now we're gonna have a closeness, a rightness with God that way surpasses just following the 613 commands. Why? Because God in Jesus is gonna renovate the heart. He's gonna transform the heart. He's gonna do something beautiful. When I say heart, don't think organ. Think at the deepest place where you think and feel. He's gonna come to where we are in our deepest self and he's gonna transform us there. The Pharisees were trying to see a transformation, but it was by focusing on keeping the commands. What they were missing was that Jesus is gonna actually make it possible because he's gonna renovate the heart. We're gonna to want to and be able to live up to God's commands. And apart from Jesus, this is going to be impossible. Now this gets back to the question though, what do we then do with the Bible? Because we're living you know, past the time of Jesus. And now we not only have the Old Testament, we also have 
the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. We have Jesus's words in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the Acts. And then we have all these letters to these churches and into the end to Revelation. We now have the whole Bible. Okay, before we look at the six things that Jesus is going to identify in the Sermon on the Mount, the six laws that he's going to highlight, what I want to do today is actually help us to appreciate the first two-thirds of our Bible. How do we read it? How do we understand it? And I'll be honest, there are times where I'm reading in the Old Testament and I am just bored and frustrated. Like it sounds archaic and the places I can't pronounce and, and you get into the poetry kind of stuff where the prophets are in a poetic form talking about these ancient places like Babylon and, and these words against them and the Assyrians and who else. And I get lost too at first. And so I don't blame you if at times you look at the, the Bible, the early part, and say like, man, can't we just skip it? Here's the challenge. Jesus said, not even the last little stroke. And what he's referring to is in, in Hebrew, which is what Jesus would, would know in the scrolls that he would read, there were no vowels as huge signs. The vowels were simple dots and little lines. And what Jesus is saying is everything God has said down to the little accent mark that shows you what the word means and what the letter means. Every bit of this is valuable. Okay, so how do we read the hard parts of the Bible? So today I'm going to give you and remind you, we've done this before. I want to give you five things that we can do. And I'm going to ask you to write these down and even by faith, take them, put them on a piece of paper and put it in the front of your paper Bible if you use one. Because whenever I encounter something I don't understand, especially when it comes to all these laws, what I can do is learn to ask the right questions rather than skip it. What Jesus is saying is he came to fulfill these beautiful teachings, this way of God. And so as one of his followers, here's the contradiction. So many of us, we throw out the Old Testament. Here's the problem. Jesus thinks they're beautiful. Jesus thinks the law is wonderful and he came to complete it and give us the ability to live in God's way. The goal of God giving the law in the first place to his people was so that he could walk with them day by day. They could know his heart and his mind and they wouldn't have to wonder, I wonder what God thinks about that. They would know exactly what God thinks and they would know how to treat God and they would know how to treat one another and together live as a people that actually love God and love neighbor. That's what God's always been doing. That's been the heart of it. But what do we do with these 613 commands? Now, I grew up in a great church that had amazing worship, great preaching. But I, I will say this, and it's probably my fault. It was probably out there, but I didn't get it. It was not until college that I actually began to understand how I should think about the Old Testament laws. When I was a high schooler, I mostly thought, well, other than the Ten Commandments, which, was Ten Commandments, which seemed to be really important, most of them I don't even need to worry about. It wasn't until college where I started taking classes about the Bible that I began to realize, like, oh, wow, like I'm disregarding something that Jesus says is really important. Yet, because of Jesus, I need to look at them with a fresh set of eyes. I need to actually read the Old Testament laws in light of Jesus. So what I want us to do is look at five questions we can ask, and I'm gonna use one example 
that can, like one law from the Old Testament that we can use as kind of a test case. And I hope this is not dull. And if it does seem dull, uh, if you already know how to do all the Old Testament study, then just, you know, nod in your home and, you know, trudge through it. I think, though, actually, for most of us, we're frustrated because we don't know how to read it. We don't know how to apply it. And so I hope this will ignite a passion for you to read all of the Bible with passion. Now, why am I doing this? Uh, actually, before we look at these five things, I want us to turn just real quick to Second uh, Timothy 3, and verse 14, this is why this is super important. Uh, verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3 says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it, and then notice verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. So Timothy, Paul's telling this younger Christian leader, remember, from a young age, you learn the holy scriptures, which, what are the scriptures for? Are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, at this point, Timothy mostly has, he may have had the Gospels. What he has is what we call the Old Testament. And Paul says, remember, you've, you've learned these scriptures and God's words have created in you a sense of wisdom because you can see Jesus for who he is and verse 16 is key. All scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that uh, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why is this super important? It's because God has given us the scriptures. We don't worship the scriptures, right? We don't worship the Bible, but it is impossible and I'm going to go as far as to say that. It is impossible to grow as a Jesus follower apart from the scriptures. Well, we read it in Matthew 5. Jesus says, not one of these words is useless. Everyone is important. And if we as his followers ignore it, how are we going to grow to follow in the pattern of Jesus when Jesus loves the Bible and we seem to disregard it? But Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is able to give Timothy insight. Not only do the scriptures enable you to know who Jesus is and become a Christian to be saved and come to faith in him, that's key, but it's, it's useful for teaching and correcting and training, even rebuking. There are things about my life that I want to be shaped into the way of Jesus. And the primary tool that God's given us is the Bible, all of it. And so not only do we have the Bible, though, remember Jeremiah 31, there's this sense where God's going to come and put it on our heart. And I think what he's referring to clearly is the role of God's presence in making the Bible understandable. We not only have the Bible, we also have John 14, 15, 16. Jesus says, when I go and I'm going to send the comforter and my spirit's gonna be in you and with you, and the spirit is going to remind you of all the things I've taught you. So today we have this huge advantage. Not only do we have the information age, that's not even one of the advantages we have, but what we have is the Bible, the written word of God, and we have the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of God. So now we can't use the excuse, well, it's just like antiquated and I don't get it, therefore it's probably not important. Wait a minute. 
the, every word of God is important to Jesus, so it ought to be important to me as one of his followers. And I have the Holy Spirit, and so the Holy Spirit is able to take what's hard for me to understand at first and make it understandable and then relevant to everyday life. All right, so how do we go from being bored with or confused by to actually growing in? Well, let's get to these um, five statements, all right? Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20, but let's just keep reading and see what these commands are all about. Exodus 22:25. This is just why these five things are important. Exodus 2:25 says, "If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest." Okay? That's what the Bible says. Exodus 22:25, "Don't charge interest." to someone who's a part of my people. In other words, someone who's a person of faith, in their case, um, part of the people of Israel, let's say in our case, a Christian. Is it right or wrong to charge another believer interest? If I read Exodus 22, at first reading, I would say no. Well, it gets more interesting. Exodus 23, verse 17. Three times a year, all men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Verse 19, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Now the one about the interest is interesting, right? Do I charge other people? What do I do with the rest of these? Meet with, three, with God three times a year. Am I supposed to meet with God three times a year? Jose, you say, come to a gathering every weekend. Are you going against the Bible? Uh, don't offer blood with yeast. Well, I don't offer any blood sacrifices. Throw out the fat. Okay, that seems weird and obscure. And don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. I don't even know what to do with that. This is why we need a guide to help us understand and appreciate none of these are throwaway. Hear me. None of this is irrelevant. None of this is a waste of time. These are the words of God, and I can gain something from every single one of them. Now, the grid is Matthew 5. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish, but complete. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the one about interest, because I think we can connect with that. It's about finances and as a Jesus follower, how am I to respect what the Bible says about money and helping people when they're in need? Let me, let me read the one law again, Exodus 22, verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. How do we read the 613, this is one of them, the 613 commands. First question I should ask and write this down, what am I supposed to learn? Every word of God has a purpose. Now, some of them are going to be a little more obscure. What is the purpose? What am I supposed to learn? Every word is supposed to teach us something about God. They reveal God's heart. And so Jesus is going to help us to understand what an ancient law like this means. What am I supposed to learn? Well, there are people who are needy. Okay, I get that. And there are people who can help those that are needy. I get that. So the framework of this law is that there is a helpful and an unhelpful way of helping those in need. 
And so as one of God's followers, what I want to do is I want to help people in need in the right way. The law there says don't charge interest because they're in need. In other words, don't take advantage of them. Okay, that's the first thing. The second question, though, I need to ask myself, and this is huge. What did, what did this mean to ancient Israel? When I'm looking specifically at the 613 laws, I need to remember this was given to a particular group of people. Remember Exodus 20, God's people had come out of Egypt. He rescued them. This particular group of people, he was bringing to the land of promise, to his land. And he said, this is going to be the guidelines for how we're going to relate and how you're going to relate to one another as my people in my land. Well, we don't live in that land. As a matter of fact, 95% of these laws are very specific to that group of people. So I want to ask myself, okay, these laws were intended for this group of people in ancient Israel, and what do we learn? Well, it doesn't take that much digging to realize, okay, this is about the needy being helped. Well, they had no banking system. They had, they had no way, they had no lines of credit. And what did they have? They were moving into a land where other communities, right, were going to surround them. And so when I'm in need, who should I go to? I should go to other people who are in my faith community. Uh, God's call is to love him and love one another. So if someone has more than enough, I should be able to go to my brother or sister and say, I need help. And then that brother or sister, the purpose of this law for ancient Israel was to keep people who are needy from falling by the wayside and suffering. And so this was a helpful tool for justice. If I have more than enough, I'm to lend to my brother or sister. And how do I know this? Like, how, do I, how do I figure that out? Well, I continue to read the Bible. If you have a study Bible, oftentimes it will give you cross-references. If you don't know what to do with a particular law, often it will give you other verses to look at that are similar. Let's, uh, let's just look at another one about charging interest. Leviticus 25 is, is just like it. Verse 35, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Look at verse 36, do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend your money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Notice this is framed specifically for people within the community. And notice at the end, God even gives us the rationale. Don't charge interest. Don't make a profit. Why? I'm your God. Oh, by the way, everything you have is mine. So to be my people who live on display to the world, to be salt and light, right? To be salt and light, to be God's example to his world of how wonderful it is to live with God. What should we do? When there's a needy person within the faith community, we should surround them and not make a profit. And so specifically for ancient Israel, they were not to charge any interest. Deuteronomy 23 verse 19. I just got this from a study Bible, which had those little cross references. So I'm not like some Bible genius. I just read the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. 
you may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. So the question we need, now there, those are three laws that are very interconnected. Together, what do they say? Is interest in the charging of interest wrong? Well, even if you read the three laws together, no, because ancient Israel is allowed to charge other people in a business transaction interest. But if they're in the faith community and they are needy, notice that, if they are in need, uh, those who follow God are not to take advantage. Why? We just read, if you read all three together, you realize the reason. God says, I'm your God. Like, I brought you up out of Egypt. You were dirt poor and had nothing. You were slaves and I rescued you. So to live in the pattern of God's love and the pattern of God's way is to treat resources the same way God does. And we're to love one another and help one another. And it doesn't mean that they are forced to give it away. Notice it's a loan. So if someone's having trouble, they're to pay it back. The poor are not to take advantage of the rich and live lazy, but rather there's a sense of justice here. So the, the 613 laws mostly surround how Israel, God's people, are to live in a way that's right and just. God wants to bring them into the right with himself. Be holy as I am holy. The Ten Commandments are first about how we live right with God. The first four, but the final six of the Ten Commandments are about how we live right one with another. And so in the same way, all 613, although they may seem super specific to us or boring or weird or ancient or irrelevant, most of them have to do 95% with ancient Israel and how they're their practice a right relationship with God and a right rela relationship with one another. Third question. Okay, so we're going to ask, what did this mean to ancient Israel? Um, if you don't know what to do on that one, there's nothing wrong with consulting a study Bible. If you want to know the big picture of any, any book of the Bible, if you're like, I don't get what Leviticus means, all you need to do is go to the Bible Project, bibleproject.com, and, and you can get an overview in usually less than 10 minutes of an entire book of the Bible and see how it works. There are online resources left and right that are absolutely free. There's the NIV application commentary series. I would totally recommend it. NIV application commentary series. It's on every book of the Bible. You can just buy it for one particular book. You can do it um, electronic or print. And it gives a lot of this background information. Let's not let laziness, let's be honest, let's not let laziness keep us from knowing the heart of God. These words matter, even if they don't all apply in the same way to us as the church. If you want to grow in discipleship to Jesus, if you want to grow as one of his followers, what we want to know is what is God's heart? All right, third question, why did God give it? Why did God give it? And now we already, in a sense, answered it for this particular law about charging interest. It was all about caring for those in need. So the heart of the law is not about, hey, never make a profit. The heart of the law is do not let anyone in the community be overlooked. God cares about everyone. And guess what? God gives some families more than enough 
that in a time of need, they're going to be able to loan it to their neighbor, and the neighbor is to be responsible and pay it back. But be just and be kind and do not take advantage of one another. That's God's heart behind the law. Now, the fourth question is, is kind of connected to this. What does this law reveal about God's heart and God's ways? So when I'm looking at these laws, I want to I see, okay, where do I see God and God's character pulled out? And, and here we even see it. When they cry out to me, quote, I will hear for I am compassionate. So if I read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what I get again and again and again connected with these laws, and I, I picked this one because it was super clear. God says, I'm the God who got you out of Egypt, aka I've provided. And when we charge interest, when we don't care for the poor, uh, what, what does God say? I'm going to hear the needy. And guess what? I'm a compassionate God. So it'll be very weird for you to say, you're my people and not act with compassion. So the person who has more than enough could charge interest and make a profit off of his neighbor. But God is saying within the believing community, that doesn't reflect my character. No problem with a profit, no problem with interest for interest's sake. But I do have a problem when my people look at those in need and, and abuse the situation. And guess what? God knows the heart. His heart is full of compassion and he knows Let's not kid ourselves. Our hearts are often filled with greed. And we're quick to say, well, this is a great opportunity for me to make an extra buck. And God says, no, that's not how my people are going to live. All right, fifth question. And we're almost done. What are the implications of this law based on our New Testament situation? Whenever I'm looking at the 613 laws, I need to remember Jesus came to complete them God's people were living under the old covenant, the old agreement, and the 613 laws were central to living out that relationship with God. But yet we live in a new agreement. And Jeremiah 31 answered in Jesus. He's, he's written the law on our hearts, right? It doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament laws, no. But we do recognize that we see them in a new light because of Jesus. So let's get back to that question and that example. Should a Christian charge another Christian interest? Well, what I ought to do is look in the New Testament and see, is there a specific repeating of that command? Like, does Jesus say you should not charge a brother or sister interest? Does Paul, do Peter, James, John, the writers of the New Testament, does the Holy Spirit give them that command? Now, uh, we're going to look next week on murder. And what we're going to find is that Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments about do not murder is repeated exactly in the New Testament. So God's people in their first covenant were not to murder. Guess what? In the New Covenant, we're not to murder. Thank God <laughs> that law is repeated. But what about this example of interest? What do we do about that? Well, you don't see Jesus saying you're not to charge a brother or sister interest, and you don't see a precise repeating of this law again. So can a Christian charge another Christian interest? In that sense, I say, yes. Based on our New Testament understanding, we're not 
uh, having to hold on to the strict adherence of that law like ancient Israel was supposed to. We live, live under a new agreement. We live under a new covenant. We live under a new way. Except, hear me, we don't throw out that law. The spirit of what God is saying, God's character, God's goodness, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. What we see is the heart of compassion. What we see is the heart of justice. God creates a system where those who have do not take advantage of those who don't have. So if you read James, oh my goodness, read James 3, and you read the words to the rich, the warning to the rich about abusing their riches and not caring for the poor, and it will frighten you. And it's a reminder, while I might be able to charge interest, is there ever a place for a Christian to cheat or to make it an advantage or to abuse a situation where you're putting another Christian in a spot where they aren't able to repay? Absolutely not. That would be wrong. So we're not looking just to the letter of the law, Exodus 22, but we're looking at what God has said in the law, in and through Jesus, and Jesus teaches radical generosity. Jesus is going to go on to teach, hey, if someone asks you for one thing, give them another. Jesus is going to say, forget about worrying about interest or not. We're here to be generous because God is generous and compassionate because God is compassionate. All right, five questions I'm asking you. Write it down, put it in the beginning of your Bible, because next week we're going to pick up on this. And when we look at Jesus's word on murder and anger, we're going to see these five questions lived out. All right, well, let me end with a uh, statement that goes back to the intro at the beginning. What do we do about the Bible in general? We find so much of it to be confusing, but I think the right place for us to end, in a sense, prepare ourselves for next week is, where is your passion and what is your view in terms of the importance of Scripture? Do you see time with God in the Bible as important and valuable? Or is it just one of many books? Are you like most Americans where 50% or so, or so would say, well, the Bible's an okay spot for moral teaching? Or do you see the Bible as the word of God that has the standard for life and how to live with him and with other people? What is your view of the Bible? Uh, let me state the obvious. What you think about the Bible right now will shape the direction of your life for decades to come. Because you and I are followers of Jesus and Jesus loved the Bible, if we want to grow in allegiance to Jesus, to live under his good rule, to walk in his ways, to live as salt and light, there is no way we're going to be able to do that without asking God for a growing passion for the Bible. Here's a sad reality. I hear and I know of more passion about the latest Netflix series about the latest YouTube video, about the latest TikTok, you know, viral video that's going around, than I do about learning and wanting to learn and grow in the scriptures. This is not a point in the finger, but if we're actually gonna grow in the way of Jesus, it's gonna come in and through the Holy Spirit shaping and working in us through the scriptures. So here we are. We're gonna respond in worship, we're gonna respond uh, by taking the bread and the cup. 
but you know the state of your own soul when it comes to the Bible. You know if it's important to you or not. And, and I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to reignite a passion for the Word of God in your life, not just for a week, not just for this series, but for a lifetime. If I am not passionate about God and what He has said, it's going to be near impossible to thrive as one of his followers. You can try apart from the Bible. I don't recommend it. But what would it look like if we as a church became a community, not that worships the Bible, okay, but worships Jesus through a dedication, a passion, and absolute allegiance to the word of God? What would it look like? I pray, my friend, that it would start with me and that it would start with you. So let's come, let's, let's, before we sing another song, let's ask God to reignite a passion for the word so that we would know God's thoughts and ways and want to live it. Lord, Lord the Holy Spirit, we ask you, one, to forgive us. Forgive us for taking the Bible um, so flippantly. Forgive us for neglecting, forgive us for trivializing. Forgive us for making excuses about why we can't know it, when frankly, if we wanted to know what it means, we could search. But Lord, we want to walk in your ways. So Holy Spirit of God, reignite something within us to even desire to know, to understand, and to live out your holy words. Thank you for breathing out words that are useful for us to rebuke and teach and correct and shape and train so that we would, God, we would be God's people who are living out God's ways in a world that doesn't know you, Lord. We want to be salt. We want to be light. You promised us we would be those things. But Lord, we want to be shaped and defined even by your word. So Holy Spirit, do something in us today, this week, this month, this year, so that we'll know who you are and live in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.